Welcome back to the Spirits Guide Podcast. I am Rich, your guide to the intoxicating spirits world. And this is part two of my lunatic ramblings, diatribe, whatever nonsense is spewing out of me. Part two of my thoughts on the landscape of bourbon in, in its present state. Uh, I thank everybody for coming back for part two. Uh, I know you might think I'm crazy after part one, uh, but I, I do feel like there's, you know, I I want this to be sort of a, a, a maybe a little tongue in cheek, but very serious at, at the same time. Uh, they're just sort of my thoughts off the cuff as they came out while I was drinking some really good whiskey. On this one, uh, we kind of amp up the discussion a little bit more. We talk about, you know, whiskey publications, learning to think for yourself, um, and, and some other things. I drink some really good whiskey as well. I don't mean to offend any bourbon drinkers. And like I said before, I feel like anybody who's listening to this kind of gets it in, you know, my friends and in the sort of community and the people who are on this journey with me kind of know what I'm about. And, and I feel like we all connect because we're all about the same thing. But there is some, you know, elements of these things that I'm talking about out there in the bourbon world for certain. Um, hope you find that, the, you know, my, my ramblings entertaining at least. And hopefully, you know, like I say, it, it causes us to think and have discussion. And I welcome anybody out there who thinks I'm wrong about anything to please reach out. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, and, and let's get a group discussion going about this. I think that'll be a ton of fun. Uh, as always, if you like what I'm doing here, you like the podcast, go to the podcast page on Spotify, follow it, rate it, um, share it with other people you think are kind of into what we're doing here. Uh, follow me on Instagram and Facebook as the Spirits Guide, uh, where you can leave reviews and comments. And, you know, if there's a sample you're curious about my opinion on that you want to get to me or there's something here that I've tried that you would like a sample of, or if you want to reach out, you know, if you got a show idea or you want to come join me here in the studio and talk about anything, books, movies, music, art, whatever, uh, we'll drink some great spirits. We'll have some great discussion. You can reach me at the spirits guide 89 at gmail.com. Hope you enjoy the episode. I honestly, I had a lot of fun making it as, as much as I kind of sound a little cranky and irritated. I was truly, truly having fun with it. And thank you guys for the feedback from the first episode. Uh, I really appreciate that as well. All right. Enjoy. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. What are you saving it for? In the end, you'll be dead. Somebody else will drink it for you. In the end, it's all just an expensive piss anyways. These are the words of the person I love the most, and, and with the exception of my daughter. Um, the most important person in, in the world, my drinking partner, my partner in crime, my best friend in the world, uh, Mr. Murph. And that's his sort of take on it, you know, and we drink a lot of whiskey together. We have drank a lot of specialty high-end products together. Um, 
more scotch than anything, but we drink a lot of whiskey. So, you know, <laughs> over the years, we've drank hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bottles of whiskey. And that really is sort of the mantra that he lives by that, you know, what are you holding on to it for? And, you know, he has had a lot to do with teaching me, like, if somebody gives you a gift, you drink it, you owe them that respect, which maybe it's just a part of our culture that is kind of dying off, you know, things like having an ethos and, you know, having culture and respect and, and honor and, and having a code that you live by. <sighs> I regress. It's a good thing that I started out with two eighty proof bourbons because really this is where I get kind of riled up. I get a little scared. Um, and I want to talk about the things that scare me about the future of bourbon. And there are some things that really do frighten me. I feel like I feel like bourbon is a snake that is chasing its tail because it thinks it wants to eat it. And it has started to catch its tail and it's devouring itself. The future of bourbon is scary. And really, to me, there's a couple of really big reasons that I'm kind of scared for the future of bourbon. One is when everything is special, then nothing is special. And that's kind of the world that we live in, in the bourbon universe, is that everything is a goddamn specialty release. Everything has to be a unicorn. And like I said in the opening, one, it's become the drink of the elitist. Like there are specialty releases. And yeah, oh, by the way, they start at 150 bucks and start to work their way up to, you know, insane amounts of money, let alone what you pay for some of these bottles on the secondary market. The fact that anybody's paying thousands of dollars for Pappy that came out this year, I'm sorry, you people are insane. It's just dirty water that's been distilled and sat in a barrel and now it turned brown and it tastes like wood. It's not worth thousands of dollars a bottle. And I, I get into the, I'll get into the, the valuation, but like everything is special now, you know, everything is allocated, but at a certain point when everything is special, then things cease to become special because it all just becomes the same. You know, I I don't fully understand. I get that there are certain things that are, are rare, you know, and, and my whole thing is like, all right, so it's a specialty release and we do it once a year. Well, like I, I, I've talked about with things like, you know, Pappy 12, I get. When the Pappy lineup started, you had to go find some older whiskey. There was some 12-year-old whiskey, and you blended it together, and you did that release. By the way, the Pappy that's coming out on the market now is probably three or four distilleries removed from where the original Pappy in that lineup even came from. Like the Pappy that won Best Bourbon in the World or Best Whiskey in the World years ago came out of a totally different distillery and i'm not even sure it came out of the stitzel weller distillery to be quite honest and i believe at one time it was even made at bernheim it's it's kind of bounced around distilleries until they really found a home at buffalo trace 
So I get when that brand first launched, when Pappy 12 was first a product in the market, when Old Rip 10 was first a product in the market, you had to go find old barrels and blend them together and get that signature profile that you wanted. That was more than 10 years ago. That was more than 12 years ago. It was more than 20 years ago when they started having Buffalo Trace make whiskey for them. So now you know what? 10 years ago, we were making Old Rip 10 on purpose. It wasn't something that happened random. It wasn't a specialty release. It was something where we made a batch of weeded whiskey and we said, this is what we're going to release in 10 years, in 12 years, in 15 years, in 23 years. You're planning for it ahead of time. Why is there not more of it? I And again, maybe I'm naive to this. You know, maybe I'm just being ridiculous. If anybody out there, and I, this is something else I want to do, and it really it, it kind of is what I want to do with this whole podcast, and everything that I do is I want to stimulate conversation. You know, so if you guys are out there and you're hearing this, and you're like, bro, you're way off base. I want to be wrong. I want somebody to come and say, like, you're wrong. This is why you're wrong. Because truthfully, that's the only way we learn and grow is by being wrong about things. If you get it right every time, you're never really learning. So I want to open up a round table. I'm hoping, you know, my friends with Horseshoe Barrel Society, that we can actually have a round table and discuss these things even further. But if I'm wrong about anything, please uh, comment on Facebook, comment on Instagram, email me the spirit guide 89 at gmail.com. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me what I'm wrong about. Back it up. I'll give you the shout out on the next podcast and a big thank you because I want to learn. Again, like we're preparing, we're planning these releases ahead of time. And yet there's not, you know, we're, there's a shortage. There's not enough to, to make more. No, we could make more. Like I mentioned, Buffalo Trace. You want it to be your everyday brand. The juice is there. Make it your everyday brand. It, you know, even Elijah Craig took the 12-year age statement off their bottle so that they could produce more and get it out into the market. There are ways. I, I've been to Buffalo Trace. I've seen the production facility. I've seen the capability for how much whiskey they can make on a daily basis. It is mind-blowing compared to you know when I was at Hill Rock in New York and, and how small their setup is. Buffalo Trace is just massive, massive, and they're only making whiskey for themselves. So I don't know why there's not more in the market. Here's some of my issue with, you know, these really expensive status bottles and kind of my fear going forward. I, I, I kind of tell the story of like when I was a kid and I was collecting baseball cards. I remember, you know, there'd be a set that would come out every year. And, you know, the main brand was Topps. When I was a kid, there was a couple of them, Donruss and Flair. But Topps was kind of the main baseball card producer and you know i was a sports nut so i collected baseball cards and football cards and basketball cards and hockey cards and you know you'd find out you know how many cards were in the set and say there were 400 cards in the 1983 set and don't quote me on the specifics of this i'm just kind of using these as examples so you had to go out and buy a pack at a time 
there might have been 12 cards in a pack. I forget the exact number. And that stick of weird bubble gum, you know, and they were called wax packs because the cards were sealed in a pack that was sealed with wax. Now, the bubble gum becomes a very important part of this story. So now you're you're collecting cards and, you know, you get a Wade Boggs rookie card, and that's great. Um, and then you need another rookie card, but you've got three of the Wade Boggs rookie cards. And as kids, we don't really care. We were just collecting baseball cards because it was cool and we liked baseball and these people were our heroes. So the fact that I had three Wade Boggs rookie cards didn't matter. I, you know, might have needed a Rod Carew card. So I traded two Wade Boggs rookie cards to get one Rod Carew. Yeah, I probably came out on the wrong end of that deal. But you know what? I was working towards building the set. I wanted to have them all. Now, say for that particular year that they made, we'll call it 10,000 Wade Boggs rookie cards for 1983. Well, you know, we trade them back and forth. You know that piece of gum I talked about? Well, when that was packed on top of the baseball card, it kind of ruined the card. So now it's not a mint condition card. It's tainted. It's it's not mint. You know, so we've traded them. We used to play with them. We used to flip cards. Kids would put them in their bike spokes. Kids would piss off their parents, and their parents would throw their baseball cards in the trash. You might spill a soda on your Wade Boggs rookie card. Whatever. Now it's just soggy cardboard. Well, by 1988... Because of all that sort of attrition, you went from 10,000 Wade Box cards to maybe now there's 7,000 left in existence. Five years later, there's 3,000 left in existence. Well, at some point, Wade Boggs goes into the Hall of Fame. Now everybody's nostalgic about their childhood and playing with that Wade Boggs baseball card. But at this point, there's only about 500 of them in existence. All of a sudden, collectors are starting to pay a premium price for it. Hey, I'll pay 100 bucks for that. I'll pay 150 So now that Wade Boggs card that, you know, you paid a quarter for that in 11 other cards is now worth, you know, 500 bucks. Why is it worth 500 bucks? Because there was a lot of it a long time ago. We all knew what it was. And through attrition and over the years, only so many survived. And that makes it valuable because there once was a lot. It took a lot to get here. And now there's not a lot left. Where I stopped collecting baseball cards is one year there was a new company. And remember kind of reading about it and doing all the geeky little things you would do as a kid and reading like this card is worth $25. Thinking like it's a brand new card. Just came out this year. It's not even old. Like you could make a million of these cards. Like why are they all worth 25 bucks right out of the gate? And, you know, I didn't fully understand it at the time, but you were basically just artificially inflating a collector's market when there was nothing to collect. We could make more, you know, they would say like, well, there's only a hundred of these cards. Well, there's only a hundred of those cards because you only made a hundred of those cards. It's not like you made a hundred of them out of gold and then made the rest of them out of cardboard. You just intentionally made less of them in order to make them collectible. And what happened? Kids stopped playing with baseball cards and they became business. And the joy, the passion, the fun you had as a kid was now gone and taken over by business. That's kind of where we are with bourbon. 
yeah, I'll pay a lot of money if I had a lot of money, you know, to spend on original bottles of Pappy Van Winkle. Hell, I would pay top dollar for bottles of old tub Jim Beam from Prohibition era. I would pay top dollar, you know, thousands of dollars for old Forrester bottles, you know, from 1930. Why would I pay that? Because back then they made a lot of them. People generally like them. They generally thought they were good in their time. And through people drinking them and through attrition and bottles being broken and lost and whatever, they might have made 100,000 bottles of Old Forester in 1930. But there's probably only three of them left in the market. Now you're holding a piece of history in your hand of something that survived, something that's been through some shit. Um, not something that was just created and gone like, hey, this is automatically worth something because we created it. Now, again, on this specialty release, I get that every now and then, you know, uh, Wild Turkey, great example, you know, they've got something that's in a bottled and bond warehouse. And all of a sudden it turns out it's been there for 17 years. They might not have even planned on that. They just kind of go back there and go like, oh, Jesus, this has been here forever. And it qualifies as bottled and bond. You know what? This tastes great. We're going to bottle this up. This is a one-time only deal. Masters Keep, 17-year, bottled and bond. Put it in the marketplace. I get you've been paying taxes on that for 17 years. It's a barrel that 17 years prior to that, we made 100,000 barrels. And these are the 12 that survived all that time. These are the 12 that have been through some shit. They've, you know... The, the whiskey barrel killer that, you know, picks things for dumping and blending went through the rickhouse for 17 years and went, you get to live, you get to live, you get to live. While other barrels were being carted off and dumped and they survived for 17 years. And oh, by the way, we were paying taxes on that for 17 years. So I get why that comes out at a premium price. What I don't get, like I said, is Buffalo Trace, you know, 20 years ago, they agreed, we're going to start making Pappy. Why not make more of it? Why not make more of it available? You're making it expensive and rare because you created it that way and you're not making enough to satisfy the market. Hell, forget about Pappy. You're not making enough Buffalo Trace to satisfy the market for what you want to be your core brand. All right, I digress. Wait a minute. I never even talked about what I was drinking. So for this segment, specialty release, and I know there's an irony there, but I'll explain why I'm drinking this. And again, I'm not knocking specialty releases. A lot of these things can be great. They can be mind-blowingly good. Um, and I've got to taste a lot of them, but there's a lot of them that I have issue with. But first, the beverage. I am drinking Blood Oath Packed six. This is the 2020 release. This was actually a Christmas gift given to me this past Christmas by my best friend Murph. So we wrap all the way back around to the intro to this segment. It's finished in cognac barrels. The term blood oath comes from the fact that the the person who puts this blend together uh, and the other people involved are all sworn by blood oath to never disclose where the whiskey comes from. As much as I like transparency, and I think that makes tasting the whiskey fun, I also respect the fact that they're just kind of keeping it a secret and letting the whiskey speak for itself. 
I can appreciate that. And, you know, if the juice is good, I'm all for it. Now, I think this might have been around the $100 mark when it was released. Uh, This is a blend of bourbon finished in cognac barrels. And there is something about, you know, this sort of this back and forth in the bourbon world of, you know, finished in. um, So technically, it's not bourbon. You have to treat it like a run on sentence. It's not bourbon. It's bourbon finished in something else. This one is finished in cognac barrels. By the way, the packaging on this is great. It's in a solid wood box. The front slides up. The bottle's really cool. Um, Yeah, everything about it is great. Finished in cognac barrels. And my thing with this is if you put it on the label, I want to taste it in the juice. I've seen, you know, whiskeys that say we're finished in Cabernet barrels. We're finished in port barrels. We're finished in sherry barrels. We're finished in apricot brandy barrels. Um, You can reference previous sample size Mondays for that one. If I see it on the label, if you go through the trouble to print it on the label, if you go through the trouble to print it on the box, I want to taste it in the whiskey. So sometimes to me, you know, the mash bills and all the, the text and the specs don't really matter as much if the whiskey tastes good. By the way, this is a Luxco product. Shout out to the great people at Luxco. They just make amazing stuff. And again, they've been around for a long time. They're not a distillery, although they just opened their own distillery. Uh, They create brands. They buy whiskey. But they have a knack for sourcing some incredible whiskeys and putting out some incredible offerings, this one being one of them. All right. Proof is in the glass. Now, again... Maybe contradictory to some of the stuff I've been ranting about, but this is 98.6 on the Richter scale or proof scale. Um, So it's a little higher proof point, which is, I guess, another reason that it's good that I started with 80 proofers because now we're kind of amping things up. Also, this bourbon is just rich and spicy. A lot of great flavors, and I'm getting those sort of kind of vanilla, grapey kind of notes from the cognac. This, yeah, I mean, this is a winner. And again, it's a specialty release. I get it. There's not a lot of it out there. Uh, I love sharing this stuff. But as I sit here and I drink this, you know, and I started off with that quote from my friend about why are you saving it? You know, eventually you'll be dead and somebody will drink it for you anyways. There's a connection between myself and my best friend in the world when I'm sitting here sipping this whiskey. Now, if he had bought me a bottle of wild turkey, I would still think of him every time I drank that wild turkey. And that's really what bourbon should be about is human connections, not status symbols. And that's, you know part of what scares me about these specialty releases is people are buying them and I get it's my kid's college fund. It's my cash out fund. It's an investment. Here's the issue with that kind of line of bullshit. And I'm going to use the wine industry for a couple of references here. 
I've been in the wine end of the business for as long as I've been in the whiskey end of the business. And people ask me a lot, you know, like, why are wine sales down? What happened to wine? Why is nobody buying wine at the rate that they used to? And there's a couple of reasons, you know, people don't travel abroad as much. Palettes change. Uh, people are looking for lower carb offerings, even though wine doesn't have as much carbs as people assume they do. But one of the other things that really has affected wine in the long run is this. And I have friends who have told me this, that 10 years ago, people would go out and they'd buy a lot of wine. And then you go home and there's only so many bottles you can drink in a night. You buy five or six. And then, you know, wine was very sort of, it was the culture of its time 10, 15 years ago. And it was the status of its time. And I remember people looking for status bottles of wine. There was no Instagram. There was no Facebook. There was no way to post it. But these were status bottles. People would buy them. They'd buy them by the case because they want to drink one now. And then they want to see what one tastes like in a year. And you just sort of accumulate it. And it doesn't happen in a day. And it doesn't happen in a week or a month or a year. But over the course of three years, four years, five years, all of a sudden you go down to your basement and you're like, holy shit, I've got a lot of wine. I have had multiple customers tell me, if I bring home another bottle of wine, my wife is going to divorce me. There is more wine in my house than I can physically drink before I die. This is what I fear is going to happen with bourbon. Everything is special, so nothing is special. But these specialty releases, and I hear it all the time from things as low as Blanton's to things as high as Pappy 23, where people will come in and go like, you know, do you have any Blanton's? No. Well, I have one at home, but I don't want to open it until I get a backup. So... You don't want to taste it until you can replace it. Or, yeah, I'm looking to collect, you know, all the horse tops for Blanton's. Or, hey, I need a Pappy 12 because I have all the other bottlings, but I don't have the 12. Hey, I need a Weller CYPB because I have all the other Weller bottlings and I want the whole set. Now, the whole set is only worth anything if you don't open it. Once you open a bottle of whiskey, it is not worth shit. It's worth a good drinking experience. It's worth some good times with your friends. But on the open market, it has no value whatsoever. It is dirty water and alcohol in a pretty, pretty bottle. So you don't open it. Now, here's what happens. You spend so much time waiting for that last bottle of Weller to complete your set. Now it's unopened. Now what do you do? Now, I can't open it because, you know, I've got six bottles of Weller here. If I open one, then the whole set's garbage. And unless I get backups for the whole set, then I can't open any of them. Now, while you're staring at those bottles in your fucking trophy case, you still need some whiskey to drink. So then you go out and you buy something good and you drink that down and you bring your friends over and you show them your trophy case. And I've got all these great bottles and you post them on Instagram and then you buy more bottles and you have more status bottles. And you know what happens? Well, one, maybe the market crashes in 10 years and they're not worth anything, but maybe this happens. Maybe now you've got a whole room in your house and it's all full of unopened bottles of whiskey. Now, maybe, maybe you're the kind of person who can go like, all right, I'm done. I'm cashing out. I'm putting this in an auction house. And then you're going to realize, wait a minute, if this stuff is worth 10 grand and I put it in auction and it only nets eight grand 
and then I, you know, have to pay the auction fee and all that stuff, I'm losing money. Now I'm going to hold on to it and try to find another way to sell it. You're not going to sell it. It's become a possession. You've become emotionally attached to it. You've had it in your house for 20 years. You're not going to let go. Here's the other thing that happens. Maybe you're not that customer. Maybe you're the one who buys it all and drinks it all, but doesn't like to finish it until you get a backup bottle. Well, then you end up like me. Now you've got 200 open bottles of whiskey on your bar, which cash-wise aren't worth anything. But now you've got to drink it all before you physically die. Uh, And as you get older, you can't keep drinking the same way you used to do in your 30s and 40s. And even 40s is pushing, you know, what you really should be drinking. So now you have all these bottles. You don't want to finish them you know, because they look good and, you know, you might never get another bottle of old rip. So, you know, you just keep accumulating bottles to drink that you're never going to finish. At a certain point, your wife or your husband is going to look at you and go, if you bring another goddamn bottle of whiskey in this house, I'm leaving you. There's no place for the kids to play. You've got a whole room full of whiskey. You don't even drink it anymore because yeah, as you get older, you just can't drink as much. So, The collectability of it becomes a sickness. At a certain point, you just stop buying whiskey. Here's another thing that happens. Yeah, I've had all the specialty releases. I get it. It's $200 and it's good. I just can't afford it. I I can't afford anymore. Here's the other thing that I use from the wine industry to kind of reference my fear is this sort of accelerating, you know, jumping up of proof points. Yeah, when we were drinking bourbon before, granted, maybe in the 80s and the 90s, some of these were 86 and 90 proof bourbons that they proofed down to 80, you know, 86 or 80 proof as a way to put more out there, keep it lighter, whatever. But we certainly weren't drinking a lot of 100, 105, 110, 115, 125, fucking hazmat where you need a special truck to deliver over 140 proof bourbons. Here's what happened 15 years ago in the wine business. Australian wines were huge. They were monstrous. You know, Rosemont Shiraz was in every restaurant on every restaurant wine list. Uh, I remember building displays of 150 cases of Lindemann Chardonnay or Little Penguin Pinot Noir. I remember brands like Greg Norman and Wolf Blass. Uh... Penfolds Grange, which was Penfolds Grange, was the Pappy Van Winkle of its time. And these wines were big. They were bold. They had a ton of flavor. They were high octane. They were 15, 16, 17% alcohol, over extracted fruit. You know, they just tasted like tar and ink, and people loved them. And we went nuts for them. Uh, Molly Duker, the boxer, was another one. Australian Shiraz was a beast. So was California Zinfandel. Those wines were hitting 15, 16, 17%. They almost were like port. I remember the first time I realized wine could get me drunk. I was drinking California Mouvedra. Zins, Mouvedra, Shiraz were monsters. And you know what happened? Not only did people have so much of this stuff in their cellar that they couldn't physically drink it anymore, eventually, culturally, we got palate fatigue. We're like, all right, you know, this one was a big alcohol bomb and a big giant fruit bomb. I, 
after a while, they just started to taste the same. We're starting to see this in beer, you know, the hazy, juicy IPA thing. Yeah, they're still coming and people are still buying a lot of them, but people used to pay 30 bucks for a four pack. Now my store, you know, anything over 20, we won't even carry anymore because people aren't doing like at a certain point, you're just going to develop palate fatigue. And, you know, Corey and I were having this conversation today of like, all right, so it's almost like any other drug, which is what alcohol is, is like, all right, I've drank 90 proof. And that really doesn't do it for me anymore. I need a, a bigger kick. I need a stronger high. So now you need 100 proof. And then you need 140 proof. And where do you go from there? You can't just keep drinking 140 proof bourbon. You're going to develop a problem. You're going to develop alcoholism. You're going to develop cirrhosis. You know, you're going to drink three or four of those and get knocked down. Oh, by the way, if you have a bottle of Coy Hill at 140 proof and you're not that person who's going to drink it, you're going to drink a couple glasses, then you're going to put it up on the shelf. And what are you going to do? You're going to buy another bottle of bourbon and you're going to keep stockpiling. So between the fact that when everything becomes special, nothing is special in the sort of cultural palate fatigue from just drinking higher and higher proof bourbons, eventually people are just going to tap out. All right. So my recording kind of cut out at the end. So I'm picking it up. Hopefully I, I don't repeat myself here, but yeah, we were talking about, uh, you know, climbing up that, that proof point ladder. And then you hit that 140 proof point. Where do you go from there? You know, you develop your body will become addicted to the alcohol and you know, Corey and I were talking about it today of like, what's next. You just start, you know, aging grain alcohol and whiskey and it, yeah, the proof point thing is just, it's going to kill you. People are going to tap out. And when they realize like, I, I just can't do it anymore. You know, it's beating up my palate. It was not it, it, like how many 140 proof whiskeys do you need to try, you know, beforehand. And, you know, I tried that Koi Hill. It was f unbelievable. And mine, I think the one that I tried was 139 something. So it wasn't quite hazmat. But, you know, hazmat whiskeys, they need a special truck to be delivered. What does that tell you? It tells you that we probably shouldn't be consuming these in mass quantities. But that's where the bourbon world is going. People are looking constantly for barrel proof, barrel strength. It's... It's like any sort of culture that, you know, just hungers for more and more and more until it explodes. It's going to reach a breaking point and a tipping point where you're either going to go to, you know, lighter proof bourbons again, or you're going to switch over and back to scotch and Irish whiskeys. And by the way, Irish whiskey, there's some phenomenal offerings coming out of Ireland right now. They're doing some really, really cool stuff. So, and again, you know, I'm not knocking specialty releases, but I'm I'm knocking also some of the, the brands that are really just built on specialty releases. You know, Old Carter, Kentucky Owl, Barrel Spirits, you know, some of these brands, everything they do is a goddamn specialty release. And I know Barrel has Stellum and Kentucky Owl is now trying to push the Wiseman. But here's some of my issues with the price points on that, too. You know, they're supposedly, you know, we're going through bourbon. And somebody had asked me, like, how much old bourbon do you think MGP still has? Well, here's the question. 
you know, I get it. 20 years ago, you could get, you know, the whiskey for an IW Harper 15 because there was a ton of it out there. Because again, 25 years ago, nobody cared about bourbon and it was just stockpiling. And then everybody was buying this and things like Black Maple Hills and Old St. Nick and some of these brands that were around a while ago. They were getting like old Stitzel Weller juice and just repackaging it under their name. That stuff's not available anymore. And, you know, MGP, which is the largest producer of whiskey, they now have their own brands. So are you telling me, like, I get it. Somebody like a Dave Peckerel, who, you know, was on the Mount Rushmore of whiskey, can go to an MGP, can go to a Heaven Hill, can go to a Buffalo Trace. He's got the cachet. He was in the business. He knows people. He's a whiskey guy. And if there is one thing that I did learn about whiskey people when I was down in Kentucky a couple of times is whiskey people are true whiskey people. You know, marketers and business people, they care about money. But people like, you know, Freddie No, people like Jimmy Russell and Eddie Russell, the only thing they care about is whiskey quality integrity reputation you know those guys may be the last of a dying breed oh i don't think so you know jim rutledge is a businessman but he still cares about the craft of his whiskey and greg metz cares about the craft and the quality and the integrity of his whiskey they're just sort of businessmen who want to make money and truthfully those guys need to make money because you know they have investors and they've started their own kind of thing but the point is, is that somebody like a Dave Peckerel could walk into Heaven Hill and go, you know what, if you've got some stuff that you're not using, I'd like to buy some barrels for you. And again, they're buying those barrels pretty much at retail price before they bring them back to wherever they're going to blend them and put them under their own brand name. What I don't get is these people who come from the wine business, these people who just have investors, these people who just want to start a brand of whiskey. Uh, and I'm not knocking them like, hey, if you can pull it off and you can do it, great, all the power to you. But the Penelope's, you know, the old Carters, the Kentucky Owls, the Barrel Spirits, you know, that just kind of walk in, put this stuff out, and then boom, out of nowhere, it's a specialty release. And I don't fully understand because, again, there's apparently not a ton of old whiskey around or Buffalo Trace would be putting out more old whiskey. Heaven Hill wouldn't have taken the 12-year age statement off of Elijah Craig. You know, Jim Beam wouldn't have taken the eight-year age statement off of Jim Beam Black if they had enough whiskey to satisfy the demand for that. Yet somebody who's not in the whiskey business can just walk into one of these you know, rickhouses and go like, I'll take that. 13 year single barrel and I'm going to bottle that at barrel proof. I don't, there's nothing in my brain that leads me to believe like these are cherry barrels and I've tasted some of these whiskeys and they're, they're Oak bombs and they're hot and, and I get people love them and they're not all like that. Um, the, the guys at smoke wagon, their barrel proof stuff, unbelievable and they're not available in mass but if you can get your hands on the smoke wagon that's probably the best of all those brands that i have tasted but i find it hard to believe and i don't know that their stuff is 13 and a half years old or 15 years or whatever it is but to just be like hey can i have that barrel i get more of the impression of somebody is like you know what that barrel is probably a little bit past this right you want that barrel sure you can have it uh we'll take the cash up front on that one you know, like, I feel like if the barrels were that good, 
Why isn't MGP just putting it on one of their own brands and selling it themselves? That's what I just don't get is how these brands just start up out of nowhere. They create nothing but specialty releases. Everything coming out of barrel is a specialty release. And, you know, everything coming out of Kentucky Owl is a specialty release. Old Carter, everyone is a specialty release. You know, when everything is special, nothing is special anymore. Now, I don't want to completely rip against the specialty release because here's really what it should be for. And I've said it before. I get it. You stumble into the warehouse and, oh, shit, these barrels have been back here for 17 years. They're special. Maybe you taste a few barrels and you're like, wow, these did something that I never thought they would do. Uh, My friend Amanda down at Virginia Distillery, she goes through her rickhouse all the time. And every now and then she'll taste a barrel and we talked about it. And she'd be like, this did something I didn't think it would do. I need to pull this barrel and we're going to bottle this because this is special. That's a specialty release. Um, That's a one shot. Like we found something. This is magical. Not I went around and bought something that nobody else wanted and then I blended together. But it's magic because I want to charge a lot and I have to make my money back. Specialty releases are special for this. You know, if you watch the bourbon documentary, I believe it's called Neat. um, And there's a great scene in there with Freddie Johnson from Buffalo Trace, who's probably the most famous tour guide in the world. And he talks about, you know, he had a bottle of Pappy, which, I mean, for the people who work at Buffalo Trace, they still understand how special Pappy is. But again, they're looking at it all day. So I feel like while they know it's great bourbon, there's got to be a level of desensitized you know, sort of to it. And he's sitting with his dad and they crack the bottle and they, you know, each have a glass and he goes to cap it. And his dad says, you know, what are you doing? And he says, well, you know, it's Pappy, you know, I don't want to drink it all. And his father said, you know, like we're here right now, you know, basically, Hey, let's get after it. And, you know, they ended up finishing the bottle and having great father son conversations and creating memories and having a moment And then, you know, a few months later, sadly, Freddie's dad passes away. And, you know, the point of that is, is that the moment was now. He wasn't, you know, his dad was like, what are you saving it for? Eventually, you're going to be dead and somebody else is going to drink it for you. Or eventually, I'm going to be dead and you're not going to have a chance to drink it with me. We're here now. The moment is now. Let's enjoy it. And that story is great. And I love that story and the whole element, because really the moment is now, you know, when I'm with my friend Murph or when I'm with any of my other friends, like the moment is now, but you know what? That moment would have been just as special if they cracked the bottle of wild Turkey. What made that story special is he was going to put the bottle away and not finish it. And it happened to be a bottle of Pappy. But the point is, is they had a great conversation and what made that bottle special was the memory in the moment of which it was created. Not the fact that he had it, not the fact that it was on his shelf like a goddamn trophy, and he got to show his dad, like, hey, I've got this. We're not going to drink it. We're not going to touch it. We're not going to know what's inside. But, hey, I just want you to know I've got this. That's my issue with specialty releases, is that people get them, and they don't want to open them, and you don't even know if they're any good. 
and you're losing out on a chance for moments. The point of a specialty release should be to share it, to build bonds, to increase the size of our community. You know, this is what I do with Sample Size Monday. And I know most of you guys out there who are listening to this, I know you personally, you know me personally, we're friends. We exchange samples because that's what we're about. But so much of this community is not about that. You know, it's again, well, I want this because it's my kid's college fund. It's not going to be your kid's college fund. Hey, I want this, you know, because it's going to be how I cash out and retire. No, it's not. You want it so you can post it on Instagram. You want it so when your friends are over, you can talk about how you got it. You can go online and brag about how you got it for a fair price. Or you can go online and piss and moan how you paid $20 over, quote unquote, MSRP for something that, you know, there's 10 bottles in the marketplace, but, you know, you don't want to pay any more for something that's rare and limited. If it's a specialty release, it should create a special moment and a special bond, not be something that's displayed. It shouldn't separate us. If it's special, then it should be enjoyed and it should bring people together. All right, I'm going to take one more break and uh, come back and, and wrap up with you guys. Be right back. All right, we are back. And if you guys are out there and you're still listening, you haven't tapped out with all my insanity yet, thank you so much. Uh, and I, I really hope you guys know, like, some of this is a little tongue-in-cheek, and, and in some ways I'm kidding. But in a lot of ways, I'm very, very serious about these things that I've discussed of, you know, when everything is a specialty release, then nothing is special. I've been talking to, to plenty of people in the industry to kind of – make sure that I'm not crazy and you know talking to some friends of mine who are on the craft beer side where everything is a specialty release they've already started to see of like all right well it's a specialty release if I don't get this one there's another specialty release and they're starting to see the demand for specialty releases on the beer side of the world just kind of diminish or plateau or or you know drop off because people are starting to realize like if you if everything is a a special unicorn, then it's they're not worth chasing anymore. It just becomes too much. I've also talked to people in sort of the distribution network for some of the Buffalo Trace products. And, you know, not at Buffalo Trace themselves, but the people who distribute, sell, you know, are kind of on the ground level, the people that I have to deal with, they're starting to develop a realistic fear about their brand that, you know, if there's not enough Buffalo Trace in the marketplace, despite the fact that they want to make it their core brand, there's a realistic fear that people will just go like, uh, you know what, I'm done. You know, it's kind of like, guys, you remember that that girl in high school that you just thought was, she was the bee's knees, you were in love with her, she was absolutely beautiful, and you'd ask her out and she'd say no. And you'd ask her out and she'd say no. You'd be nice and you were kind of friendly at times and and it, you went in and out, but you never really got to date her, you know, and after a while, it's not like she became less attractive. It's not like she, you know, wasn't a straight A student or it's not like she became less interesting. You were just 
sort of after a while, like, all right, I'm, I'm done asking. I, I know the answer. So that's some of the fears that I realistically have. And really from talking to other people in the industry, again, not at the top, not the marketing people, not the people in the corporate level, but the people kind of in the middle between me and, and the top, they're getting the realistic fear of, you know, customers are going to just go like, all right, I've asked this girl to the prom 72 times. Now I feel like a stalker. I'm just going to go ask somebody else out, you know, and, and find some happiness and some joy in another form. So again, I, I'm crazy, but I'm not that crazy like there there is some other belief of, of these things out there so as i kind of wrap up this this you know rant i i also want to reiterate that you know i do love these specialty releases like i said i love getting my hands on something special and getting to share it you know with you guys with my friends i love it when you guys come by and, and you know you've gotten a, a special bottle that you know is really limited and you want to share it with me. I can't tell you how much that means to me in, in sort of this almost validating way of what I'm doing and what I believe you guys are kind of attaching to or connecting with in, in wanting to share those things with me in the same way that you want to share them with your other friends. So, you know, that means uh, a lot to me. And again, I get, you know, when you find a, a, you know, a cherry barrel in the the corner of the Rick house, and this is amazing, and this is a specialty release, but I, I still take issue on yearly special releases, especially ones that are now being planned out. Um, and I'll go back to, you know, the Pappy stuff where 12 years ago, you knew you were going to be releasing 12 year Pappy. You could have made more and made more available to the market. Jack Daniels 10, I know for a fact, is a project that has been in the works for a long time. But yet when they released it, there wasn't a lot. So maybe that's, you know, the initial release and they were hedging their bets and maybe they didn't, they didn't want to put a lot into the marketplace with that one. But again, if you're planning on this in advance, why aren't you making more, you know, so that more of us get to enjoy it? It really has kind of turned into the Hunger Games out there where people are more about hunting than they are about sharing what they get. So I am very, very serious about those things. You know, the the status stuff, um, you know, the specialty releases. And kind of the last thing that I really want to touch upon in this bourbon landscape is publications, whiskey influencers, you know, the whole Instagram concept, which I get, I'm on Instagram. I'm posting things that I'm drinking all the time. Um, in fact, I just made a, a, a kind of a disclaimer on sample size Monday that, you know, everything that I post, I'm actually drinking. These aren't things that I'm Photoshopping or I'm borrowing somebody else's bottle for a photo op. Almost every picture up there is an open bottle that I am drinking, whether it's somebody brought it to me or I own it myself. But that being said, there are people who kind of scroll through Instagram and, you know, if you guys go through, it's, you know, bottle of Pappy. There's there's a couple of sites on there that I also think are just sheer bullshit when they're putting up pictures of a palette of Weller CYPB saying, oh, contact us. We've got this. 
you're a scam artist. Um, but unfortunately, there are consumers out there who buy into that and probably send these guys money to get bottles. I hear all kinds of stories of people who have bought, you know, counterfeit bottles of Blantons online. Buying whiskey online, unless you absolutely know, and maybe this is another problem I should talk about. Buying whiskey online, unless you absolutely positively know the seller, you've done some research, there's some credibility there. I hear all kinds of horror stories of, you know, the quote unquote new to bourbon person who has read these trade publications and then found somebody who claims to be selling, you know, George T. Stagg. I know in the past couple of months, I see people posting that they've had, you know, George C. Stagg. It wasn't even released last year, but people are posting pictures of it as if they've got it in their hands and they recently purchased it. Highly, highly unlikely that anybody at the retail level is still holding on to George T. Stagg. If they are, they're not letting it out five bottles at a time for somebody to take pictures on Instagram. It's just kind of thin. So if you're going to buy online, if you're lucky enough to live in a state where you can get these things shipped to you, um, and again, I'm not saying much like the specialty release thing. They're not all bogus. Some of them are good. I just want to provide perspective and make sure everybody's kind of paying attention and keeping things in balance. Um, you know, status bottles, all, all this stuff, just kind of keeping things balanced. There are whiskeys you can buy, you know, and get shipped to you. Uh, Massachusetts gets some really weird laws, so I don't know if you can get them shipped here. Um, but I know people who have had things like Smoke Wagon shipped to them, and those whiskeys are fantastic, and nobody's ever had a problem with it. Uh, but again, I've heard tons of horror stories of people buying what they thought was Blanton's, only to find out that they're, you know, either empty bottles or counterfeit bottles or, or whatever. So just kind of do some due diligence if you're going to you know, kind of go down that rabbit hole of trying to get whiskey shipped to you. Now, I mentioned in there the publication aspect of it. And this is kind of my other issue with the bourbon landscape right now. Because, again, this is not me theorizing. This is things that I deal with as a retailer constantly. Of oh, The people who come in and go like, uh, do you guys have any Weller? I heard it's a whiskey I should try. Where, where did you hear that? You know, I read it somewhere, but never in these articles, you know, they all say like, here's, you know, 20 whiskeys under, you know, 50 bucks that you have to try. And it's always Eagle Rare, Weller, Blanton's, Old Rip, you know, Pappy 12. I can tell you with absolute certainty and absolute fact, there was no Eagle Rare shipped to the state of Massachusetts in the month of February or the month of March. So when you read an article that says you should try Eagle Rare, there should be a disclaimer at the bottom of that description saying you may not be able to find this. It shouldn't be that you should try it. First of all, you should go through and try all the other whiskeys that I mentioned in the last segment before you even get to try Eagle Rare. But it should also be a disclaimer of like, you know, it, these aren't whiskeys you need to try. These are whiskeys you should try if you can find. That would be a more acceptable title for this arg article than just, you need to try Weller. No, you should try Weller if you can find it and get it at a fair price. But I guess that title's just not quite as sexy. 
all right, before I, I lose myself here, um, when I get into the, the publications, one of the things that I, I kind of want to get into is, yeah, all these whiskeys that you should try, you're supposed to try, try all the, you know, the amazing Buffalo Trace products. And again, I reiterate, I'm not taking anything away from Buffalo Trace products. I've been there. It is the magical Disneyland of bourbon. It's the most incredible bourbon place on earth. Without a doubt, it's just, it's amazing. But their products are hard to find, you know, and yet they turn up in every publication, except for Whiskey Advocates Top 20. There's been no Buffalo Trace products in the Whiskey Advocate Top 20 whiskeys of the year, at least for the last five years, as I can recall. Uh, there certainly wasn't any in the last two or three that I know for sure. Um, so those whiskeys are great. They're just not available in, in wide quantities, but they always pop up in these articles. And then there's other whiskeys that pop up that are, you know, either really limited, really rare, you know, uh, you should try Jack Daniels Coy Hill. I can tell you as a retailer, as one of the top retailers in the central mass area, I got two bottles. Maybe a thousand people read that publication. There's two. It's not that you should try it. It's that you should try it if you can get your hands on it or, you know, if you've got a nice enough friend who's willing to share it. You know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of these articles kind of talk about some of these these bigger names or there seems to be this whole bunch of critics, darlings that also show up in all these you know, publications, uh, you know, places like Peerless. The Peerless whiskeys are good. They're really expensive. I get why they're expensive. They're not, to me, they don't justify the price point. And a lot of the people that I talk to in the industry agree with me. Like they're just kind of overvalued for what they are, but I get it. Um, Barrelcraft. I get why it's so expensive, but to me, it's overvalued for the quality that you're getting. You're getting some interesting stuff, but, uh, you know, in their Stellum line as well. And there's, yeah, there's definitely some critics, darlings. Uh, Sagamore, uh, and they do more rye. Uh, there's another brand that, you know, is a little pricey, but I get, you know, they're doing what they do and, and you know, they want to be a premium brand. Which is another thing, too, of sometimes your price point indicates quality. Sometimes it just indicates that a brand wants to be perceived as a premium brand. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that there are plenty of other whiskeys that are really good, that are off the radar, that are interesting. Now, I get it, and I've said this before. If you're a bourbon person, if you're a bourbon drinker, not a whiskey drinker, there's a difference. A bourbon drinker, you know what you like, you know your lane, you're staying in it. I'm fine with that. You know what you like. It's like saying, hey, I like country music. Don't tell me you like all music. You like country music. I'm good with that. But a music lover will listen to hip hop, will listen to Leonard Cohen, will listen to Miles Davis, Bitches Brew, you know, will listen to country, will listen to rock, will listen to anything that's on the radio as long as it's got heart and soul and feel. That's what a music lover is. Country music lover, you like Luke Bryan and Miranda Lambert and Jason Aldean, and that's great because music is awesome. And whatever it is you're listening to, 
is awesome. Um, but you know your lane and you're staying in it. So if you're a bourbon person, you like Kentucky bourbon, you like the the big toasty oak caramel vanilla coconut notes, that's fine. But if you're a whiskey drinker, if you like the adventure of drinking whiskey, if there is something about you in the whiskey way that just gets off on finding that weird random bottle that tastes incredible, that you can't wait to go back and tell your friends, like, I found this. This is amazing. You need to try this. This is for you. So, you know, places like Starlight, uh, Woodenville, which will probably become a critic Starlight when they become a little bit more available. Uh, anything outside of Kentucky. And actually, in Kentucky, there's some great things that are coming up that aren't readily available yet but i feel like they're growing a uh, new riff is doing great stuff i don't see a lot of press on them uh but people that i talk to who have gotten a chance to try their whiskeys everybody loves them everybody agrees when i was down in kentucky they're a big deal there i think you can actually get them in new hampshire not in mass yet uh, they do a lot of bottled and bond a lot of single barrel stuff but it's all their own juice uh, and again, I have nothing against source juice, but there's something a little bit more character driven when you're making it yourself. There's just a little bit more pride from the distiller's point of view and the blender's point of view. Um, Jephthah Creed is another great one. They're doing some good, good stuff. Rabbit Hole. I just got to taste through those whiskeys with the Diageo, uh, the Pernod Ricard guys. My apologies. Um, and big shout out to my new friend, Simon great great guy um so yeah there's some other great whiskeys that are you know off the beaten path that aren't necessarily critics darlings and i'm not saying that you know the whiskeys that they write about aren't fantastic because i've found a lot of great whiskeys in those publications but i'm always looking a little deeper uh i recently found one from uh, a distillery in delaware called painted stave that was a bottled in bond bourbon fantastic interesting unique quirky and delicious great great drinker and it kind of leads me to what i'm i just poured in my glass now and and kind of trying to get on the tennessee bandwagon you know everybody loves their kentucky bourbon and you know there's some stuff from some other states that's interesting as well you know the bowman brothers stuff some of which is made in virginia uh, Smooth Ambler is another one that I just recently got to taste with the Pernod Ricard guys, uh, which is whiskey that they're sourcing from uh, Indiana, they're sourcing from Tennessee, and they're making in West Virginia and then blending them all together. Those guys are doing a fantastic job. So again, some whiskey that's not Kentucky bourbon, but still bourbon, really great. They get a little bit of press. I kind of hate the label. I don't get the whole elephant thing. But um, anyways, good whiskey, which also proves sometimes you got to look beyond the label. So what I'm drinking, and I actually have two bottles in front of me for a couple of reasons. One, these are Tennessee whiskeys. Well, Tennessee brands. One is actually all made in Tennessee. One is sourced. They're both from Chattanooga. One is the Chattanooga 1816 cask strength which was the product that they were putting out while they were making their own juice. So they sourced it from Indiana. 
full transparency on the label. It says distilled in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, which we all know to be MGP. Uh, Mashville, 75% corn, 21% rye, 4% barley, really low barley content. It's the 1816 cask, uh, which is bottled at 113. Peter Thomas, this one is for you because I know at one point we had talked about doing a comparison with this. So one of the reasons is that these are both Tennessee products, even though one of them is actually made in Indiana. And the Chattanooga 1816 was a gift to me from my dear friend Katrina, the Hurricane. Now, if you guys have been longtime fans of the Spirits Guide, you know she was around in the beginning. She was a big reason that, you know, Spirits Guide as a concept got off the ground. And it led to my inspiration to finally getting this podcast off the ground. And then the other bottle I have is the Chattanooga Whiskey 111 cask. Straight bourbon whiskey. This is all their juice. So they've transitioned out of the 1816 cask um, into their own line. Now check out the mash bill on this one. Uh, Yellow corn, malted rye, caramel malted barley, and honey malted barley. It's a little over two years old. By the way, the 1816 label, that was whiskey from two to ten years old in the blend. This is more than two years. It's kind of all they give you, but that's enough. It's a blend of six to ten barrels. It is unfiltered, so you might get some sediment in the bottle. And it is from a single fermentation, which I am interpreting, and I'm not going to state this as fact. This is my interpretation, that they're actually using a sweet mash uh, instead of sour mash. What's the difference? Sour mash is when you make whiskey, you take some of that spent grain, you put it into the next batch. It stimulates the fermentation. It allows for consistent flavor quality. Sweet mash means you start with a fresh mash every time. So I'm interpreting single fermentation to mean sweet mash. Tennessee is a fascinating place. It's right next to Kentucky. You know, Kentucky is the heart of the bourbon world there's no denying that you know most of your your bourbons come from kentucky but tennessee's right next door and until you know like the late 90s there was only two distilleries in all of tennessee that's mind-blowing to me tennessee was one of the first states to go dry even before prohibition and stayed pretty much dry for God, the next 50, 60 years at least. And the only two distilleries in the 90s you could get to were Jack Daniels and George Dickel, which is now known as Cascade Hollow. Uh, and then I think Pritchard's was the next one to open up. And now there's a few other ones. Uh, but the two coolest ones to me are Chattanooga and Corsair. Corsair, some of their products are available here in Massachusetts. Chattanooga is not as of yet, but if you're out in the wild, if you're in another state, you come across Chattanooga, I cannot recommend this stuff enough. Um, if you've got friends who are, you know, out hunting for you, and by the way, shout out to Peter Thomas because this bottle of Chattanooga 111 cask was a gift from him. 
he's you know suffering through a harsh winter in the Florida sunshine. It's terrible to be him. Uh, but I do miss him. All right, so I'm going to taste this 1816 version first. And on the nose, it smells a little peanuty. Um, if it didn't say that it was distilled in Lawrenceburg, I would almost wonder if it came out of Dickel because it's got a very similar nose to that. But obviously the mash bill is a bit different than that Dickel signature 84, 8, and 8. That is wonderful. It's amazing that it's not from Dickel. If I put that side by side with Dickel juice, I would think they were similar. Sweet, nutty. That is fantastic. At 113, minimal, minimal burn. Now I'm going to move on to what you should be able to find in most southern states now. The 111 cask under the Chattanooga label. This is a, a 375, by the way. So you probably, I don't know what either of my friends paid for these, but I'm going to assume that the 375 probably costs the same as the 750, just because it's their juice. All right. We're going in. Mm. That is amazing. I remember when Peter had asked me, like, what do you think the, you know, the comparison will be? We should do a side-by-side. Peter, if you're listening, we'll do a side-by-side when you get back. These two couldn't be any more different than a banana and a pickup truck. They're just wildly different whiskeys. They're both fantastic. But man, this Chattanooga 111 cask with all that barley in there, you're getting kind of almost some single malt kind of notes like you would from a Virginia distillery, Courage and Conviction or you know, a single malt scotch, some of that kind of cereal notes, but with bigger honey flavors, like honey, nutty, you know, some caramel flavors, some spice, you know, definitely some good rye spice too. A little bit of like some green minty notes in the back there. Again, this is a whiskey for people who like the adventure and the journey of whiskey and discovering something new. And no, it's not Kentucky. Neither one of these are Kentucky. They don't taste like Kentucky bourbon. And who cares? You know, if you're adventurous and you want to try something different, I cannot recommend these whiskeys enough. I don't know that they do the 1816 anymore. I think they've kind of done away with that now that their stuff is ready. But definitely, if you can find this 111 cask in the wild, it is worth it. It is so good. And I love the bottle, too. It's just a really cool bottle. 
you know, raised glass. I love that. It's got a cork. I love that. Um, see, it's got a cork. Nice little pop there. And that's on an almost empty 375 milliliter. So, yeah. Is it good? Yes. Is it worth the money? Yeah, as long as it's not something insane like over 75 bucks for a half bottle, it's worth every penny. Um, does it start a conversation? Yeah, I mean, Corey and I talk about this a lot. Like, this looks like the kind of bottle that if I walked into a Tennessee saloon in the late 1800s, that's the style of bottle I would expect to see on the bar. It's perfect. So the point is, like, yes, you can use these publications as a good guide, but don't be afraid to go off on your own and do some whiskey exploration. And to be fair on the other end of it, some local whiskeys, especially up here in new England, I've been to a few distilleries, you know, where their offerings are 50 bucks, 60 bucks for their bourbon or their American whiskey or whatever it is And the quality is just not very good. You know, I, like I said earlier, sometimes they're using those small barrels to try to do some rapid aging. It's just not, it almost never works out to do it that way. So yeah, in closing, you know, like I said, just use the publications as a guide, be adventurous, be willing to try different things, but you know, I get it. Balance it with, with that price. You know, if it's 50, if there's a new distillery that opened up in your state and they've got a $75 bourbon that's 10 years old. No, it's just not, it's not, first of all, it's not theirs. You know, you're paying 75 bucks for something else and they're trying to make a lot of money really, really fast or better yet. If it's one of those, age for a year and a half in you know five gallon barrels but it's 65 bucks i promise you it's gonna taste like wet wood and that's it also and again this isn't for the bourbon drinker because the bourbon drinker knows what they like and that's it they're not gonna get out of their lane they're not gonna try anything different they're not gonna get adventurous but really the American whiskey landscape, when we look at the bourbon landscape, bourbon is not everything, you know, like we talked about. It wasn't even the original style of whiskey that we made in this country. So that being said, venture out. There are other great American whiskeys that aren't bourbon for one reason or another. You know, Mictors has their whole lineup. They have their bourbon. They have their rye. They have their sour mash. And then they have their American whiskey. It's not called bourbon because they don't use brand new barrels. So you can do everything the same, same mash bill, all the aging. But if you put it in a used barrel, you can't call it bourbon anymore. It just becomes American whiskey. What is wrong with that? You're They're developing different flavor profiles, even though they're starting with the same style juice. So there are great American whiskeys. And again, keeping things in check, you know, Seagram 7, American whiskey, Fleischmann's American whiskey, probably not the stuff we want to go after. Um, but something like a Lost Monarch, which is a blend of bourbon and rye from Redwood Empire, that whiskey's amazing. Uh, 
B&E Breaking and Entering from St. George Spirits, which is a blend of bourbon, rye, and American single malt. These are all American whiskeys, and if we're talking about being connected to our heritage, blending whiskey is the heritage of all whiskey, not only in America, but in Scotland and in Ireland. Blending whiskeys from different distilleries to make a great product really is the history of, of whiskey. Heaven knows it's the history of wine. You know, the art of making great wine is blending. Even when you're buying bourbon, the art of great bourbon is still the art of blending. You know, if Buffalo Trace, Evan Williams, Elijah Craig, Jim Beam, whatever it is, they're still blending together hundreds, if not thousands of barrels of whiskey. And we love those. Why not take a chance on something that's a blend of bourbon and rye or bourbon, rye and single malt or a blend of whiskeys that are aged in new barrels and used barrels? What I'm saying is be adventurous. If you like bourbon because it's American, great. But try rye. Try some other kind of funky whiskeys, too, like wheat whiskeys. Bernheim, to me, is one of the great undiscovered treasures in our whiskey landscape, it's made with 51% wheat instead of 51% corn. Fantastic. Under 35 bucks, seven-year age statement on the bottle. Get adventurous. Give it a shot. Corn whiskeys, which have to be 80% corn and can't be aged in new barrels. They have to be aged in used barrels. Again, there's some great corn whiskeys out there, and I will, I will fight anybody that tells me that Mellow Corn from Heaven Hill is not a good whiskey for an under $20 a bottle pour. It's got an amazing label that looks like it hasn't been changed since 1960. So it's classic. It's cool. It's also bottled in bond. So it's a four-year-old made by one distiller, one distilling season, bottled at 100 proof. It's just aged in used barrels. It could be called bourbon. It meets all the criteria. It just happens to have 80% corn in it, and it's aged in a used barrel, so now it's not called bourbon. And so we kind of dismiss it as not good whiskey. It's good whiskey. So enjoy the publications. Use them as a reference. It's a nice little guide, but don't become so dialed into them that you get tunnel vision and you lose your sense of adventure, which really is what bourbon is. It's all about, it's about adventure. It's about discovery. It's about sharing with people. And if we kind of keep some perspective and keep things in check and keep things in balance and not chase bourbon up the proof point ladder and not get so wrapped up in specialty releases that we forget about the everyday releases. Let's not get so wrapped up and what's bougie right now that we forget about the horses that pulled the cart when nobody else cared. Let's not get wrapped up in what everybody else tells us is good. Uh, you know, it's great. Somebody recommended that you try Eagle Rare. That's fantastic. Somebody wrote it or somebody you know says, hey, you should go try this. It's wonderful. That's great. But. Don't limit yourself to just the things that somebody else tells you is good. Make decisions on your own. 
discover what you like by keeping things diverse. You know, there's a reason I carry a hundred different bourbons and a bunch of different ryes and American whiskeys and Scotch whiskey because everybody likes something different. And if we get stuck in this funnel where we all just like the same thing because it's what somebody told us was good instead of figuring out what is good for us, we're going to kill the category. You know, uh, they're just going to start to make bourbons that all taste the same. And then they're all going to make them high proof. And then they're going to make them all specialty releases. And in the end, we're going to lose half the category, which for those of us who stick around in the category are going to lose when that landscape changes to that. So I apologize for being crazy and, and kind of ranting, but I am passionate about this. I'm passionate about all spirits, you know, and bourbon just seems to be kind of the one that's, that's driving the force. It's the hottest thing going right now. And what we see with everything over time, flavored vodka was the hottest thing going. And then people get sick of it and it died. Rum was the hottest thing going. And then it just kind of collapsed into Captain Morgan and Bacardi and Malibu. For a while, tequila was the hottest thing going. Now it's kind of rescinded back to name brands. And you're starting to see less sort of craft, interesting offerings. I don't want the same thing to happen with our bourbon. Try things. Go outside the category. If you go outside the category, it might remind you why you like the category to begin with. All I'm saying is keep an open mind. Keep a sense of adventure. Think for yourself and share with your friends. Thank you guys for sticking around with me all the way to the end of this rant. I appreciate you guys more than I can possibly say. I'll check in with you guys soon. Thank you. Cheers. Yay!